Okay, so uh, this is the Brewer to Brewer podcast from All About Beer, a conversation that goes beyond the brew house and into topics that matter to brewing professionals and curious beer drinkers. Visit allaboutbeer.com and follow on social media. And to support journalism in the beer space, check out patreon.com backslash allaboutbeer. Uh, I'm Ashley Carter uh, from Beerstadt Lager House, and this week I'm so, so, so glad to be talking with my friend Tanya Cornett of Ten Barrel Brewing, and uh, we'll get into it in just a moment. But first, this message. First Tea is a proud sponsor of the Brewer to Brewer podcast. They've been working with brewers on a wide range of ingredients and delicious beers. First Tea combines the flexibility of order sizes with the experience you need to create innovative and successful tea beers. They get you the most direct from farm tea selection, so you are working with flavorful and consistent products. You can find more about First Tea's collaborations with brewers and tea ingredients by visiting blog.firsttea.com. That's blog.firsttea.com. Hey, Tanya, how's it going? Fantastic. Thank you so much for asking me to do this. I am so excited. When John told me I got to pick, I was like, hand of God, like, I'm going to pick like the coolest people I know. And you're one of the coolest people I know. And I haven't actually gotten to talk to you a ton. You know, I've gotten, we've gotten to be, know each other a little bit over the last few years, but uh, I thought this was really cool. And I've listened to like a ton of the podcasts and interviews you've done because, you know, you've been in the industry a, a long time and have been an inspiration to me. So I know a little bit about your story, but I think it's cool to like be able to ask you, you know, some other questions and hopefully, you know, other people get to know you better. Um, and I really enjoyed my conversation with Chris. So I was super pumped to do this. So thanks for, thanks for uh, accepting my request. Yes. Anytime chance to get to talk to you, I will be there. Fantastic. So I guess we'll just jump right into it. Like, I know we got to do the whole thing just in case people are unfamiliar, you know, uh, I read something recently that somebody had posted that there are no quote unquote beer celebrities anymore. And I don't necessarily like agree with that, but I do think that we've, you know, moved past some of the early adopters and the people that kind of started this industry and, and you're one of those people. Um, so I think it's good to like refresh people that it's not a new industry necessarily. It's still kind of in its infancy a little bit, but there are people here who, you know, were part of it, you know, from, from more of the beginning. And so I think if you could just give like a brief background of like when you started, you know, you've done this before, you yes. know, the synopsis. Absolutely. I'll give you kind of the truncated version. Um, in 1995, um, my husband and I moved to Fort Collins, Colorado, and I'd been bartending for a really long time. So it was like, I knew domestic or import. And then I got a job at a place with 40 different um, tap handles. And all of a sudden, there was this microbrew thing. And I'm like, I have no clue what this is. So one of the girls uh, sat me down and taught me how to describe beers. And for the first time, I found a few that I actually liked. Um, Homebrewed for a minute. Um, that same girl's boyfriend gave us all the homebrew equipment. Um, homebrewed for about two months. And I was really kind of looking for a career path. Um, I had uh, gone to graduate school, hated it, left, and basically was on this um, journey to figure out what the hell I was going to do with my life, which is why I ended up in Fort Collins. Um, so I really took to it. I like kind of technical process and involved process. So it really intrigued me. Um, I got a job at HC Burger Brewing Company. And at that time, there were 
very few women. And I look back and I, I feel like I was kind of a mascot for them. Like I was this little 21 year old bebopping around the brewery, putting together packaging and giving tours. And I don't think they for one second questioned why they should hire a woman. It wasn't even something that they thought of. Um, and it was a great place to work, super fun. Um, I had asked the brewmaster to teach me how to brew. And um, he was just like, Tanya, number one, you're too little. You need to be able to pick up a, a bag of grain. And at that time I was pretty tiny. Uh, so I certainly grew into that part of it, but he was like, I don't have, you know, trading an employee costs a lot of money and I don't really need a brewer. Um, he did come like one Saturday and home brewed with me, which was phenomenal in my world. And um, he was like, wow, you really do get this. You have a concept. And he was like, well, um, I have a friend who owes me a favor. I'll call in that favor on you. So basically he had taught Jim Parker how to brew and he got Jim to teach me how to brew. So basically I was volunteering at a pub called Dimmer's um, with Jim and I was still working at HC Burger. So I was able to learn really fast. And the guys kind of treated me as like their kid's sister. And so they would pawn off jobs on me, which I would be so excited to fill kegs or whatever. And then they get in trouble for, you know, pawning their work off on me. So it was just really a, a fun, easy atmosphere to learn. Um, Basically, I decided I was going to start a brewery, so moved back to Indiana, which is where I'm from. And of course, no bank was going to give a 25-year-old girl money to start a brewery, not at that time anyway. There was just, there were no craft breweries in Indiana. I mean, there might have been two at that time. Um, I ended up getting a job at Oak and Barrel. I worked there for several years and realized, like at that point, that's when I realized there was no women. I realized that guys were having a, an issue with me doing the same job as they were. They were having an issue that I could do the job and I was doing it as well or better. Um, I realized, I think I asked for a quarter uh, raise per hour and they said no. And I was just like, you know what, I am done. <laughs> with this, I need to get some education. I need to invest in myself because if I don't, I'm gonna get looked over. I'm all, I will always be looked over. So um, I went to the diploma course at Siebel. And then after that, I got a job at Ben Brewing Company. I was there for 10 years. And then I got a job at Tim Barrel and I've been there for almost 11. Wow, uh, I mean, I think you always like know that it's weird when you're kind of in like an insulated bubble, I guess. And you think that like, oh, you know, you're just kind of doing your job or whatever. And then you transfer to somewhere else and realize I'm not out of my league, but people aren't looking at me differently when nobody had looked at me differently beforehand. Uh, and, you know, to hear that I, a little bit has changed, of course, and we'll get to that a little bit later, but uh, some of it has not, of course. Um, you know, so you joined 10 Barrel after Ben and you had a ton of success at Bend. Like, I think you really need to tell everybody like how, I mean, how much you've won. Like you're a fucking winner. Like you're just like a, you're goddess. Like Bill tells, my husband says, you know, I was there and she, I, you know, I never really heard of her and I kind of heard her a little bit. And then at the world beer cup won everything like, and I don't think that's the first time you won. Right. 
you know, um, medals had, and stuff like that. What was your first medal? Like how many did you win after that? And I know medals aren't everything, but I think that you continue to do it even this last year, just to see a career span that long and, and just continuously winning. I think there's something to be said about that. I, I would say I've only won a few at a time, a couple times. The rest has been like one a year. I'm just very consistent. <laughs> but um, my first medal was in 2005 and I got a gold in IPA at the Great American Beer Fest. So that was the one that really hooked me. And I was just like, okay, this is my thing. I'm good at this competition thing. And I really excelled at it. Um, in 2008, I won Small Brewery of the Year um, at the World Beer Cup. So I won a couple medals there. And at that time, you know, you could win two medals and win Brewery of the Year. So that was certainly a huge highlight for me. And I kind of felt like it was a little early in my career for that to happen. Um, I, I felt like I was still really green. Uh, that's when I got asked to judge. So ever since then, I have judged every World Beer Cup, every Great American Beer Festival. Does that mean I'm going to see you soon? Yes. Yes. Fantastic. That's what I wanted to hear. Uh, and you won a couple <laughs> last year, right? Uh, so let's see. I, at World Beer Cup earlier this year, I actually hit with three of my beers. That's um, what it was. Yeah. I hit with Cucumber Crush, which was great because I had brought that beer back into competition. I hadn't entered it in years and years and years. And I, I just thought, you know, why not? Let's pull that in and see what it does um, for a while. Cucumber beers weren't doing well. And so I just took it out. And then um, I won with, uh, what did I win with? Uh, gosh, that's funny. I can't really too much winning. Just too much winning. That's all <laughs> <But> right. The, <laughs> the big one was actually for a beer called Money Cat. And um, that is a rice lager that I've been I working right on here. for about two years. I and I was ecstatic. Last I'm going to drink it today. So uh, that's so cool. I'm excited to try it. Uh, I knew that I texted you right afterwards. So I kind of already knew, but, uh, you know, it's good to hear. Uh, so like, okay. So it's so funny. You say cucumber crush, right? Like that does like that blows my mind. Cause I would never think to put cucumber or anything in a beer. Like I'm, I'm so straight edge. Like I have, I don't know that I have a creative bone in my body. I'm going to be honest with you, but you do. And I think like, even after, you know, you've been in the industry since, you know, 1995. What is the motivation to keep making all these different kinds of beers? And like, how do you stay not, not motivated? Like, you know, I've got to go run this 5k or whatever, but like motivated and inspired to make these beers that are different. Um, cause I, like I said, I don't have that. Like, how do you come up with these beers? Like, do you just throw it in a hat? Like for me, this seems like a wild process to me. Well, I think it's one thing. I mean, of course, now this is my job. My job is to be creative all the time. I have a, a team um, and we are constantly looking for new ideas. It's just like a steamroller. Like we're working on multiple projects on any given day. And I think that that kind of changes your perspective on being creative. Um, you know, our goal is really to have a diverse tap list at the pub. Um, in addition to the core brands that we have on tap all the time. Um, and then we also have to produce beers that will eventually go to production. So we do have some projects. Um, sometimes we look into a beer that, you know, marketing loves and it, it goes on, but 
sometimes they are, I guess you'd call assignments. So we're constantly working on things and that's our mindset. Um, it can be hard to be creative all the time. Um, there's a few things I do. I keep a running list of ideas. Um, I'm also, I mentioned that I judge. I am a selfish judge. When I judge, my goal is to find to a takeaway, something that I can take back, whether it's an inspirational beer, whether it's a flavor combination that I've never thought of, whether it's um, a wood that I've never aged with, I need something, I need some little nugget to take back. And you talk about um, Cucumber Crush, that idea actually came from Cigar City and I got that judging. So the only reason why I know it was their beer was because they won. And they added cucumber to a Saison. And I had already been working on kettle sours quite a bit. And there's a point during fermentation where it kind of has a cucumber element. So my mind went right there. And I knew I'm going to go back and make that beer. And it kind of blew everybody's mind at the time. And now you see them, you know, everywhere. So it's not that big of a deal. It was a, a little niche for a minute. Um, and then I also occasionally will brew beers that fit into a category. So I kind of challenge myself with that. Um, there was one World Beer Cup um, where I was judging um, fruited wheats. And I was like, I can make a beer better than these, at least as good. And so <laughs> Victor Novak was sitting at the same table and I can remember saying, note to self, you need to make a beer for this category. Well, he noted it too. And at that GABF, he won gold and I won silver in that category. So there That's are amazing. reasons to judge you know, it really does make you a better brewer. Um, we also taste beers from everywhere. Anything wacky, we are going to try. I will have my friends send it to me if I read about it. Like, hey, can you get a hold of that beer and send it to me? Because um, you never know where inspiration is going to hit. And I also, like, if I think that it's a good idea, like maybe the beer isn't as good as it could be, I will try, I will challenge myself with, rebrewing the same concept so I can see if I can make a better beer and there have been a few times where I couldn't which was a little surprising to me because usually I can but it definitely does happen um I also keep up with the trends I know a lot of especially older brewers poo-poo all the new trends I love them because I learn something every single time that I can take and apply back to one of my older beers and make it better. So that's been very instrumental for me personally. Um, I also trial new ingredients all the time. My office is just littered with crazy wacky ingredients. If I go to a cooking store, I'll grab all the little packets of stuff I've never heard of. Um, and it's all just kind of randomly laying around to provide inspiration for me and for my team. So have you ever, I, I mean, uh, I, it's funny, people send me random stuff. Actually, I got sent some like random vanilla beans once and I used it to make extract at home. So vanilla extract for my house. Um, but I, I think that's like very interesting how you have kept, you know, an open mind. And again, the, you know, poo-pooing, I'm, I'm guilty of it myself a little bit, uh, but 
I think that it's really cool how you've embraced that and, you know, tried to, you know, make fears better to try different things and say, is this a good idea or not? I mean, do you ever have an idea and you think it's going to be a good idea, but like totally isn't and you haven't been able to make it a good idea? Yeah, for sure. Um, I definitely have had some misses. Uh, one that comes to mind is um, I'd had just like a strawberry wheat from some random small brewery and it was so beautiful and delicate. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is so pretty. I'm gonna make one for the summer. And I used a strawberry concentrate that I happened to already have in house and it turned it like a rusty brown color. It was horrible. It looked like overbrewed iced tea. I'm like, nobody's gonna drink this. It was actually pretty tasty, like but oxidized I was like, New England IPA. It was horrible. It was it's just like the way it looked, I was just like, yeah. But then now I see some of these smoothie beers and yeah, maybe it's not so bad. Maybe you're ahead <laughs> of the trend then, you know. Yeah, right. Um, another <laughs> one that amazing. comes to mind is uh I brewed the we basically wanted to dip our toes in kind of making smoothie beers and from the brewers that I talked to, my thoughts were I'll make um, a double golden and it'll be high alcohol. I'll cut it with fruit 50-50 and see where that gets me. Um, it's not working. <laughs> I'm actually blending one right now. I'm just like, wow, this base beer sucks. Um, definitely didn't need 50% fruit and it's hot and it needed some acidity. So I'm working through stuff like that. So, you know, not everything works. And I definitely, we do trials as well. So sometimes you think um, like a flavor combination is going to work and it doesn't in beer. And I'm very hesitant in just jumping right in and doing a whole batch because I don't want to be stuck with a beer that I don't like, um, much less dump it. So basically we'll just do growler trials or benchtop trials so we can figure out, is this really feasible? Is this really the best for best flavor combination for a certain base beer? And it's really helped out so much. That's uh, yeah, I can't, I mean, I can't imagine like trying to make a whole batch of something that you're not really like that sold on. Um, is there any ones that like you weren't sold on to begin with and then ended up being kind of a wildly great success or can you usually see the writing on the wall early? Like, are you really good at being like, I really believe that's going to work. And so it does work. And I really believe it doesn't work. So it doesn't work. I mean, you've made a ton of these different kinds of beer and done a different ton of different trials. You probably have a good, you know, Rolodex of information about what does and doesn't work. Yeah. I would say, um, in the past, probably three or four years, I take less chances. I want to make sure that I'm putting my best foot forward and the, the whole team, really, we do less of these kind of spur of the moment common combinations. We will definitely take an extra few days, do those growler trials and proof them out. We've also come up with some cool combinations that we would never come up with by doing these growler trials. Um, I can remember I did this beer at Ben Brewing Company. Um, and basically it was just like an Imperial Porter. And I had gotten a bunch of um, uh, Montmorency cherries. Again, I had had the Montmorency cherries um, when I was judging and fell in love with the whole flavor profile, decided I was gonna do this kind of Imperial Porter. Well, that was probably 
2010-ish, people weren't really doing those beers. It's kind of crazy. They they were just sticking to the standard styles. Um, and so I added like way too much cherries. And I was like, oh, what am I going to do with this beer? And it was like the beginning of summer. And I had a Grundy tank. And I was just like, I just need to get you out of the way. I can't deal with you right now. I'll revisit you at the end of summer. And so I had a bunch of brewers that, you know, would come in and tour the brewery and I would give them samples of it. And, you know, after a couple months, there was this look on their face when they tried it. And it was just like, oh, my God, this beer is lovely. It's beautiful. And the way it aged out um, really got me hooked on aged beers. And that is something that I kind of do secretly is a lot of beer aging and then blend it. That's fantastic. That's way cool. I love to hear like those things that you don't really know it's going to work out or not and ends up working out and kind of teaches you something about it. Sometimes, you know, it's that patient portion of it, right? Sometimes you want something to be instantly good or tell you instantly what it is. And sometimes it doesn't exactly happen that way. So is that like what a typical work week looks like for you? You know, when you're uh, making these beers, is it like a bunch of meetings and you guys like sit down, like how much of it is brewing, how much of it is like concepts, you know, Um, related? Well, I kind of feel like there's no typical work week for me. We are always just flying by the seat of our pants. Um, like I'll come in on Monday and set a rough schedule for everybody. I'll look at the inventory um, for the pubs to see where the holes are and what we need to brew. Um, we'll decide as a group what beers that we'll brew. Um, you know, do we need base beers for the sour room? Do we need a new lactoculture for production? You know, do we have a project deadline coming up that we need to fulfill? Um, then on Tuesdays, I almost always brew. For me, I have to be in the brewery. Um, I like to brew one to two times a week, but it's kind of been an average of one. Um, I just really need that ownership of a beer and I need I need my hands on it from beginning to end to feel like that. If somebody else just brews a recipe, um, I'm somewhat disconnected. And then the rest of the week, I feel like I put out a lot of fires. <laughs> so it depends on, you know, I'm going to meetings, I'm talking to marketing, I'm talking to sales to see if they need special beers for some kind of promotion that they're doing um, or a special project. Um, we're hand bottling, we're bottling for competition, I'm labeling, I'm sending them off or I'm judging. Um, it's just a lot. Yeah, I see of- a lot. Uh, I mean, I, I love this that you're you know still in the brew house I think a lot of um, people's first inclination is to give up some of those things is to give up you know being in the brewery and actually putting their hands on it I'm very much the same way Uh, I haven't had as long of a career as you yet but I don't know that I can imagine a day where I'm not the one making beer because it is so disconnected to it I, I mean even when I had my assistant start kegging and stuff like that I started to feel like, do I even know what's happening in my brewery? Like I start to have these like dreams that I have mislabeled every tank, don't know what's going on, that I'm just a failure and I can't, you know, get myself together. Like, so I totally understand that. Like I have to feel really close to the things that I'm making. And I think, uh, you know, for me, that helps me understand it better. And also, again, I don't know what else I would do. This is what I want to be is I want to be a brewer, you know, deep down. I don't want to be a 
a manager of, of stuff and things. I mean, maybe a pop podcast host now. Watch out, John Hall. I'm coming <laughs> for you. Um, well, that's cool. So, you know, like uh, I want to shift gears a little bit, but kind of still in the same vein, you know, talking about uh, where this industry has come from, where it's going a little bit, you know, some of the good, some of the bad, some of the things you're super you know, proud of professionally, you know, I, I think it's interesting to see where, where it's come from, where it's going, but you've had like a first, you know, front row seat to that. And I think it'd be interesting to get your take on, you know, the things that I think have improved and also the, the places where I think it hasn't and both personally and, and in the industry and professionally. Um, well, this was kind of hard. Like I had to really think about this question a lot. Um, I think for one, like you mentioned earlier, you don't have these like brewing rock stars emerge because there are so many brewers out there. It's really harder to make a name for yourself. Um, I mean, there can only be so many cool kids on the block and it's easy to get overlooked in this mass of brewers. Um, and when I think back of like when I first started and people were starting breweries, um, everyone wanted to grow their brewery bigger and faster, um, as fast as they could, as big as they could. A lot of breweries got rid of their small systems and, you know, they had 50 barrel systems. And they went right to the big guy, you know, brewing. Um, and I think now people have learned that they just kind of get in find their sweet spot and kind of stay that same size. I don't think that really worked for a lot of breweries, a lot of larger breweries. And um, when I started at 10 barrel, there weren't that many breweries that had 50 barrel systems that also had small innovation systems. And that was something that 10 barrel, I mean, they specifically hired me for innovation um, and they felt like that was important. And I see a lot of those breweries that had gotten rid of their small kits now buying them back and hiring someone for that position. Like it was a really smart thing to do because if you, and, and I think, I also think back to those days, like everyone was looking at more like English styles. They were very regimented. The beers were in a box, like it had to be had to fit in this box and um there wasn't as, as much experimentation so you didn't really need that innovation you had your core brands and that's what you're going to be putting out forever same beers and it didn't really work out over time and i really think that um you know that could pop in my mind i think this whole kind of infusion of creativity might be attributed to um, like all the cooking shows that have come up and even just the variety that you see in the grocery store, you go to the condiment aisle, you know, it used to be ketchup and barbecue sauce. And now it's like everything you can think of um, at the candy bars. Look at these gourmet candy bars. They're putting everything in candy bars. And it's like, none of that was happening before. And it's this whole kind of fusion of all of that has changed the brewing landscape. Um, another thing, you know, certainly competition between breweries has, there, there didn't used to be that competition. There used to be a lot more camaraderie. And now you see breweries um, that are diversifying into other beverages because it is so hard to sell beer these days. Um, 
you know, when brewers first started, they were really adamant about, um, I'm not going to compromise my beer. And now you see breweries making seltzers that that just wouldn't have happened kind of back in the day. Um, another thing to me that's pretty mind blowing is um, like the choice of ingredients because, you know, when um, craft brewing first started, there just wasn't a lot of choices. I mean, you could get some imported malts and things like that. You were using imported hops, but just think of the amount of variety that we have today, especially with hops. Um, it seems like there's a new experimental being plopped on my desk every month. Um, and then not to mention all the different hop products that are out there. And um, I recently just used some of the, um, let me get this right, frozen fresh hops that are cryoed. That would, it, that's yeah, crazy. Do you think overall, like that's a, a positive? I mean, it has to be kind of a positive for your job as, you know, lead of innovation and stuff, but do you think uh, that's lended, lent, lended itself, lent itself to, um, you know, better beer or just more beer? Do you know what I mean? Um, well, I think back to like one of the first master brewers meetings that I went to in Oregon. And I can remember kind of being in a group of brewers and they were talking to some guys from different hop companies and they were talking to some of the growers because they are so close to um, the Pacific Northwest that they just pop over to our meetings. And I can remember them asking for aroma hops, like we need more aroma hops. And at that time, I was so young, like I didn't, I thought there were lots of choices. And I look back now and to see how far they've come and like all the big tropical hops, those didn't exist back then. And to have that ability to me is really cool. It's just another tool in the toolbox. And so I will play with those hops. You know, we're constantly, and that's another reason why I kind of like doing hazies is because you can have a base recipe and then you can just throw these different hops into the same recipe and you can really get a good feel of, you know, what that hop is contributing and then also how it goes through biotransformation. It just gives you so much in information that you can apply back, you know, to the other beers that you're working on. Cool. Uh, you know, I'm, I've got two like pretty fun questions that I like to ask all my friends because we kind of all have a shared you know, experience. What is the worst brewing mistake you've ever made? <laughs> Cause I have a couple of mine, you know, like whether they're just embarrassing or straight catastrophic or just like the thing that just make you so mad, you know, about yourself. Like, I, you know, I, I one time just left a valve on, you know, open on a 60 barrel system and dropped, you know, 45 barrels of grain on the ground, which is forever unclean, uncleanable. Like to this day, like I, I can't, you know, I didn't, it was the worst mistake I've ever made. And I paid for it for hours because I was cleaning it up too. So like, what, what, what's yours? So you've had a very long career. Like what is your one, you know, maybe two like worst mistakes you've ever made. But the cool thing is you'll never do that again. Right. Yes, I've never done that again. You are correct. <laughs> Every time you're double checking that valve to make sure that, oh, my knockout line and hot water aren't getting mixed on the way to the fermenter, which has totally happened to me. Um, I often think that, you know, if I'm not making mistakes, 
then I'm not learning. Um, and I have had some happy accidents, you know, happen that end up working out. And then I'm like, oh, wow, that's fantastic. Um, I would say recently, as in like two weeks ago, uh, the, I was trying <laughs> I to do that. a pseudo decoction on my Doppelbock. And I've switched up ways that I'm trying to accomplish this. And um, I bent the grain out sweep, just totally bent it. And I couldn't grain out. And it was my fault. I shouldn't have done it. It was stupid. And yeah, I would say though, the worst probably, it was more of an accident that happened um, was when I was at Ben Brewing Company. I had some uh, Grundy serving tanks and I was on a ladder and they were on stilts. So they were super tall. So that's why I was on a ladder and I was kind of leaned against the top trying to figure out why the ring was leaking. It ne never leaked before. And if you've ever worked on those tanks, you don't take those tops off. <laughs> Once they're on and not leaking, you leave them. So I kept turning on um, the CO2 and then it was still leaking. And I, I had my little squirt bottle like, okay, it's leaking. Why is it leaking? And they have a T-bolt that holds a ring on, that holds the top on. And basically the weld broke. And I probably had about 10 PSI on that tank. And the lid went through the ceiling and the it sounded like a bomb going off. It was so loud. And That's I horrifying. fell back against the tank behind me and had some really nice bruises um, from the carbonating stone. But basically that was a moment where I had to evaluate, am I really gonna continue to do this? It, it was terrifying. I could have died. My head was just there. And it was one of those accidents that really kind of make you stop and think about safety. <laughs> and yeah, we do a date. We do a dangerous job. We, we, you know, we sometimes get so, you know, good at what we're doing or, you know, so kind of in the motion that you sometimes forget, like it is a really dangerous job and you have to really be aware. And, you know, it also, for me, what I think it, it those kind of things that happen, I, I think that it should make everybody look at, first of all, the equipment that they're using, right? Like those tanks have gone out of style for a reason, you know? And if you're still using stuff like that, we should really think about like not, you know, and trying to keep people safe. And same with just little things about, you know, hurting your back or bending over to pick up something or, or whatever it is, just making it easier on your body so you can do it for as long as you've been doing it and long as I've been doing it. Uh, I think, wow, that's really super scary. I can't yeah. imagine. I think I would have like cried in a corner for like a while. I've oh, been gun shy for a bit. It was bad. Like the bartender was downstairs and ran up and he was just like shaking me. He's like, are you okay? Are you okay? And I just said, I don't know. <laughs> Cause I, and my ears rang for a good solid week. Cause it was so loud. So yeah, super scary. And I think this is a very manual job. And I think one of the reasons why I am still able to do it is because I don't manhandle things. I know, I know what my limits are. I ask for help. Whereas a lot of the guys that, you know, were brewing um, 
and start at the same time as I did, they're in sales now or they're in management positions because they've just made things work and broken their bodies. I think that was a big, I mean, it's a big thing. You know, I'm lucky enough to own my own brewery, but to make sure that nobody has to do these certain things, you know, from a, from a, when I first started, you know, I became a professional brewer in 2011. You know, I, I took, I was an athlete before that, but I went back to the gym and I hired a personal trainer for just powerlifting like to make sure that everything about my form was right to make sure that, you know, I'm picking things up properly. And that I was like, I'm not going to have a reason that I don't keep up with these guys, but honestly, nobody should be doing that. Nobody should be lifting a full keg. Right. No, I mean, not, a, not a dude, not anybody like nobody should be doing it. And so I think we got to definitely get somewhere in this industry. You know, we've gotten a little better, I think since the very beginning, but you know, not, not far enough yet. You know what I mean? It is a very physical job, yeah. but you should be able to do it no matter what size you are, really. As long as you yeah. can pick up a grain bag to mill in, right? That's the, the exactly. bar. Yeah. Then you should be able to do this job. So I think that's cool. Yeah. And I definitely see um, older brewers that own breweries. Like they definitely start to make things easier. Like whatever it is, they put those um, process in place. Um, so they don't break down their body. And as far as working out, I definitely have done the same thing. I still strength train every single week because it's really important. Because when I was at Ben Brewing Company, those Grundies on stilts, the kegs went underneath of them. So I was constantly like hitting my back and um, I had the old Haas Stevens kegs. So you just had to roll them. And my back was trash and I feel so much better now that I don't have to do those types of things. Absolutely. Well, uh, I think we'll change gears a little bit, but uh, on that note, we're going to take a short break uh, for this message and then come right back for more of this conversation with Tanya Cornett of 10 Barrel Brewing. First Tea is a proud sponsor of the Brewer to Brewer podcast. They've been working with brewers on a wide range of ingredients and delicious beers. First Tea combines the flexibility of order sizes with the experience you need to create innovative and successful tea beers. They get you the most direct from farm tea selection, so you are working with flavorful and consistent products. You can find more about First Tea's collaborations with brewers and tea ingredients by visiting blog.firsttea.com. That's blog.firstea.com. Um, okay. So I want to change gears a little bit and get to know you a little bit more personally, not just in the brewing world. Cause I think that like, that's part of what makes this podcast really interesting and cool. Um, and if you haven't listened to the other ones, you should definitely listen to all the other ones because I think this is maybe one of the coolest ideas that anyone has ever had John Hall. Uh, so, uh, do you have any secret talents? My husband and I were talking about this not too long ago, like, like, what do you think your secret talent is? And he named my secret talent. And I didn't even know it was my secret talent. Uh, I am the best drunk chef. Like I can chef oh. anything. Like, I think I should have a TV show where we go home drunk at two o'clock in the morning. We stop at seven 11 and then we go home. And we got 20 minutes to make a gourmet meal. I think I could totally crush it. I could go home with anybody to their kitchen. It's just, it's my secret talent. That's what I'm really good at. Like, I don't know why. But, and I'm also good at reading people. Like I know pretty much right away, whether or not you're a good person, it usually pans out. And the next year I say, if somebody gives me bad vibes, they usually are bad vibes. 
So that's my other kind of like secret talent. So right on. How about you? I can't wait for you to cook for me at two in the morning sometime. Yes, let's do it this week or <laughs> when you come to DBS. Absolutely. Um, I would say I definitely have some passions. I don't so growing up, I always said I want to be good at one thing. Um, never do that to yourself because now I'm only good at one thing. I really am. I've obsessed about it so much. Um, I'm really good at gardening. I love gardening. I love being outside. So at least I think I'm good at it. Um, I grow a lot of flowers. I'm not too great at tomatoes. This is a horrible place to grow tomatoes, but that's <laughs> a whole other issue. Um, but I, I would say kind of my secret talent with beer is turning a bad beer into a good beer. I don't know how many times we've had a beer that we were like, meh, meh. And through blending, I've been able to turn it into a beer that's kind of a showpiece. Um, so that's been really big for me. Um, I also have this tenacity about beers. And I think of Money Cat is a good example of that, where there's a beer I want to make, and I will just eat away at it, eat away at it, eat away at it, just trying to make it better however I can. I send it out to other people, get feedback, get feedback from competitions, and I'm tweaking it little by little by little. And, you know, I've brewed this beer, I don't know, 25 times at least um, to get where it is. But what's funny is I get it where it is, where I want it to be, and then I'm kind of done. And I move on to the next project and do the same thing. But I'm very uh, single-minded when it comes to that. Very focused. Speaking of Money Cat, I just popped one and it smells awesome. It's perfectly bright. And I am, oh man, I'll give you some more feedback afterwards, but I didn't okay. want to drink this whole bottle while we finish the rest <laughs> of this podcast because I think it'll be the, the perfect uh, fodder for this. Well, that's awesome. I think, you know, being able to think outside the box and like having that natural ability to, you know, look at something as a whole and kind of take elements from it and kind of tweak it and make it better and make it, you know, salvageable without necessarily just throwing the kitchen sink at it and hoping it works. So I think that's really cool. And then, you know, as far as obsessing about one beer style, I think that like so far so good on this. I think, um, <laughs> you know, we've had a lot of talks about Doppelbach, uh, yep. which I think have been super fun. I drank that last night and it was excellent as always. I think if you're really getting there on the dryness and I think the malt character is just rad and it's like the right alcohol content, which I think everybody gets wrong about Doppelbach is they think it's some big boozy thing and it's really not. Uh, you should still want to drink, you know, two of them uh, as it turns out. So like for Doppelbach, I know we're going to say we're going to talk about personal stuff, but instead I'm going to talk about Doppelbach because I do <laughs> like that and it is personal. I'm about to make mine in a couple of weeks, uh, but uh, I mean, you've been working on Doppelbach. Is that like the one beer you're working on right now? Or what, you know, what would you say your handful of beers that you're working on right now are? Um, Doppelbach, but it's kind of one of those beers. I get one or two shots at it a year. So it's gone really slowly. And I would say, I, I don't even know how long I've been eking away at that style. Um, I can remember the very first, uh, world beer cup that I judged and, um, I really wanted to judge Doppelbach because I wanted to know like what makes one better than another. And I can remember sitting at that table with a couple of Germans and being like in my head, like, Oh my God, these all 
look the same, they smell the same, they taste the same. And then the Germans saying, oh no, this is the perfect Doppelbach and this is not. And like really taking that information in and trying to figure the style out. And then also like all the Doppelbachs that I would get um, all the imported ones, by the time they get to Ben, they're oxidized. And so for a long time, I was like chasing this molasses character that I couldn't get. <laughs> Come to find well, out. It's like oh, all the no. IPAs. It's all the IPAs in Europe, right? They all taste yeah. like our traveled, oxidized, caramelly IPAs, as it were. So it kind of has the same effect. I think that's why it's taken so long for some of the, the imported styles to get so much better here, because the only examples you had of them were the ones that came here unless you've been there directly exactly and they're bad <laughs> and they're and they're bad by the time so, they speaking, get to where they <laughs> yeah behind the time they get to where they're going they're they're a shadow of themselves exactly. like i would hate to, by the way i would hate to see what my beer tastes like traveling that far along too so this is not you know a critique of of what they're doing this is a this is a beer should not be traveled like that beer should be drank fresh right like beer is fragile it's the nature of it it and, is the nature of it yeah so and that's the beauty of it, though, yeah. too, right? It's yeah, a beauty. It's, a super beauty. it's fleeting. It, not everything should be everlasting. I love the fleeting aspect of it. I love the time and place, right? I love the idea of, you know, drinking something super fresh and really kind of getting an appreciation for it. I mean, it took me the first time to have to understand Czech Phil's was being in the Czech Republic, you know, like going to go have those beers fresh was the thing. And honestly, when you look at your own styles and I think some of the emphasis for a long time, when we talk about these breweries going really big uh, has been to try and make these beers last for seemingly forever. And they just don't. And so, you know, I try not to be so harsh on myself when I have an older beer because you know what it's supposed to taste like. And I'd rather my beer taste like a 10 to begin with and then fade to a five than it, you know, be hyper pasteurized, all these other things and just be a, a like a seven or a six forever, you know? Right. So like for me, I definitely like fresh beer, everything. So, you know, on that note, like let's talk about travel a little bit. Cause it's something traveling for me is one of my favorite thing on the planet. And I know you've gotten to do a bit of it, you know, in the United States and otherwise, like, uh, I'm very happy to be in the beer industry for many reasons. And one of that honestly is the, the ability it's afforded me to, to travel because of beer. You know, it is, it is the thing that I love doing the most and I've gotten the opportunity to go a bunch of places and meet, I mean, beer people all over are just awesome. They're so welcoming. They want you to be there. They want to invite you places. So, you know, uh, I love traveling. I'm not ready to give it up anytime soon. And I love that beer has brought me to those places. Like, have you, you've probably experienced the same thing, especially, you know, being in the industry for long and living where you live, you know, getting to go to the Pacific Northwest and hops and all these things. And Oh, just tell me a little bit about your favorite places to travel, whether it's in the United States or otherwise, places you haven't gotten to go that you would love to go or, you know, places that time and time again, you know, call to you, I guess. Right. Well, um, to go back to kind of the Siebel diploma course, I was in the very first course that partnered with Domans in Munich and I didn't know that like I had applied and got accepted and then they changed it. And it wasn't until I was getting ready to go to Chicago that they said, oh, yeah, in seven weeks, you're going to go to Germany for seven weeks. And I'm just like, what? What? I don't know German. And, you know, like it was just this whole mental thing. Um, 
but the amount of awakening that I had on that trip was invaluable. Just the beer styles that it, it, it exposed me to and kind of the mindset of Germans and kind of the technical aspect of their beers and how difficult those beers are to make. And especially with the equipment that we have here, sometimes it's really hard. And I think that's one thing, one challenge I've had with the Doppelbox specifically is I'm trying to do, I'm trying to make my equipment do something that it wasn't really made for. Um, I think one of the most unexpected places I've been to was um, with the acquisition of SAB Miller, I was able they have a, a hop farm in South Africa. So I was able to go to a brewer summit um, during harvest in South Africa. So that was really cool to see the hops grown there, to tour the experimental fields. I remember one experimental we were rubbing um, was just like banana cream pie. And I still remember after all of this time. Um, another hop that we have access to is Southern Passion. And I don't know if you remember that whole thing where right after the acquisition, they just didn't have a very good yield. And so everybody was so angry that they didn't have access to these hops. And it's just like, I was there, I saw like, there is not that much. There isn't. And all those like hops were spoken for. It's just a very small amount. Yeah. yeah. And they were sold locally. And I met, you know, brewers who got to brew with them. So when I got my one box allotment, I was ecstatic. Um, and I actually named a beer Passionate Envy because of the Southern passion that I used in it. And that's been a really fun that thing. That was a over the way years. cool hop, actually. I got the chance to use that hop, weirdly, uh, kind of right before the acquisition. I don't know how it all happened. I don't know why everything happened like in the exact same moment, but I use that hop to, as a collaboration to dry hop, uh, pills at my friend's oh, brewery. Nice. Uh -huh. And it was like, so rad. I was I, I, like, I don't know that I would do it again. Cause it's not really my style, but at the time I was like, this is so awesome. And this bougie name that it has, you know, Southern passion yeah, right? was just like icing on the cake. But was, I mean, I think there's a lot of misinformation about you know, some of these things. And, you know, we're, I, we, I purposely didn't want to talk too much about, you know, the acquisition, all those things, because I think it's really important for people to understand that we are just two brewers, right? Like that's something else, like that whole overarching thing. We could obviously have sit down and have a bunch of conversations about that, but at the end of the day, you know, the brewers are just brewers, you know, doing brewery things, right? Like just, looking at hops right going there smelling hops picking grain coming up with recipes like our days are very very similar to one another um, when it comes down to it so I think that's cool to, to hear your side and say that no no like there really wasn't any like yeah you got there really one wasn't box. there wasn't any it all just happened in a perfect storm yeah like I had to beg for that one box <laughs> that's it and that's the only one I got I didn't get the other the other um, different varieties. I got the one. The um, one single box. Yes. <laughs> and I made good use of it though. Um, I've also, I got to brew in uh, China with Jing A, which was pretty amazing. Um, I was in a documentary that took me to Italy and I wasn't there long enough by any stretch of the imagination. That's someplace I would love to go back and, and really explore the cuisine along with the beer and kind of what's going on in that beer scene. And then I think 
one of my one place that I would really, really like to go to is Japan. So I've had amazing beer from Japan and I've I've roomed with different judges from Japan and just that's a goal for sure. Oh, I'd love to go to Japan. Uh, number one on my list right now is South Korea. Because oh, nice. I want to eat all the Korean fried chicken there is. <laughs> um, like I watch all these cooking shows and stuff and I, everything in Korea, South Korea looks just like the most amazing edible thing ever. Japan, definitely high on the list. I've never been to China. That's uh, definitely there. I've spent a lot of time in Europe. Um, so I'm, while I love it there, uh, there is kind of a sameness and a safeness there as far as like, not like physically safe or anything, but just, you know, you understand the food for the most part. Like you, it's something you can wrap your head around a little bit. You know, their lives look basically like our life, you know, slightly differently. You know, Americans get bathrooms really right. And the Europeans get, you know, social structure really right uh, comparatively, but trying to go to these places that are incredibly different from where we are, I, you know, going to Peru for me was really eye-opening. Um, and so I'd love to see more of these uh, places that, you know, I don't really have a touchstone for, you know, I've only kind of seen. So yeah, exactly. Um, I think my biggest obstacle is I don't know any other languages. So that kind of, for me, is pretty intimidating. And if I can go with someone else who's either been there before or kind of knows the terrain, um, I'm a lot more comfortable. When I did go to Germany, there was one guy um, in our class that had been there tons of times. He knew all the great places to go to. He had this book that was amazing that I can't remember what it was, but it just told us exactly where to go. And that to me made the whole trip so much better. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's definitely one of those things as I think going with beer stuff though, it definitely lends itself to that a little bit, right? There's kind of this overlapping, you know, love of this one thing. And I think the language barrier now with all the technology is getting, you know, so much better. Like it's so much easier to, to deal with some of those things. You know, you can get directions for something sure, on sure. your phone, right? You're yeah. not having to ask somebody for directions. And I, I think that makes it a little bit easier um, but I'm with you. I mean, having somebody, I got the opportunity to go to Rome with a guy who used to be a bartender at Falling Rock. Um, and he grew up in Rome. And so we literally got to see wow. Rome in, I think we were there for three days, two and a half days. We saw so much in three days. Cause he's like, where do you want to go? We're like, Oh, Trevi fountain. He's like, okay, walk this way. Like there was no looking at maps and we stopped at his favorite gelato shop. And, you know, he's like, Oh, how about the Spanish stairs? I know this park up there. There's a fountain. Like the whole thing was so much easier having somebody, you know, we say something and he's just like, we walk directly to it. So I got to see Rome, honestly, in, in two and a half days, which I don't think is possible. And of course there are parts I missed, but for the most part, we saw everything that we wanted to. We said the words and he was like, walk straight there. And he's like, Oh, I know a beer bar right here. And I'm drinking an IPA walking outside the Coliseum, like how surreal is that? Right. Like exactly. Amazing. Like, yeah. I mean, it's kind of funny. Uh, we always have the saying that Americans uh, think a hundred years is a long time and the rest of the world thinks, you know, a hundred miles, at least, you know, <laughs> Europe and stuff. They think a hundred miles is a long way. Right. So it's the yeah. same kind of idea. We have no idea. It's like the stuff just lives in their backyard and it's ancient. Well, that's cool. Yeah. Hopefully one day we'll get to travel together. Cause I think it'd be super rad. That would uh, be fantastic. So let's just plan a Japan trip. Let's just go ahead and do okay. that. 
I'm yes. down for sure. Fantastic. Um, so, uh, I definitely want to switch gears a little bit, um, and talk a little bit about, you know, I don't want to talk about, you know, us having vaginas a bunch, but I think it's, I think we're remiss if we don't touch on it in an organic way. And I think just having this conversation, you and I, I think that makes it really easy. Um, you know, as a woman in this industry, I feel, of course, I've been helped by that, uh, harmed by it in some ways, but, and I don't really want to talk about that. I want to talk about what that equality looks like to you. Like, what does it look like? What does the industry look like in its best form? Cause I kind of have my idea of what I think it is, you know, and I don't love talking about it, but I think it's something we still kind of have to talk to without it being the, you know, main topic of conversation, if that makes sense. So, you know, where do you think we are now on a scale of one to 10 on our way to it being a better industry? And, you know, where do you think 10 is? Well, um, when I first started in this in industry, um, one of the first craft brewers conferences that I went to was in San Diego and there was like a line for the men's bathroom, like half a mile long. And they were hopping in the women's bathroom because there was no line. There was no women there, um, which was really crazy. And I look at it now and there's definitely women in the room, like at craft brewers conferences, there's tons of women there. And um, to me, that's amazing. And it, it makes sense because anytime you have people interested in, in an industry or really anything, um, you're going to have the initial adopters and then you're going to have the people who are interested organically. And it was just a matter of time before women um, started in the industry. And I think it's something that's going to continue to evolve for sure with other minorities. I mean, the hardest part was really ripping that Band-Aid off and talking about it and saying, hey, this is an issue and we need to attract more diversity. Um, it benefits everyone when there's more voices in the room. Um, where are we? I would say on a scale of one to 10, maybe 4.5. You know, I don't think we're quite over the hump yet, but I feel like um, we're starting and that's amazing that we're starting. Will we ever get to 10? I don't know. Um, maybe not in my lifetime or my lifetime within this industry, but it's definitely better. It's not stepping backwards, which is a bonus. I think, um, I think I agree with you. I think 4.5 is a pretty good, we're, we're at the hardest part of the hump. I think not, maybe not the hardest part, right. We've, we've kind of seen these things before a little bit, but I think we're getting over some hump here and I think it is getting better. And I know there are people of course that would disagree with that. And, you know, we all have our own personal experience and I think it's important to to understand that we don't all share all of the same experiences. And I think that sometimes is difficult in our positions as uh, women. Um, and I'm sure there are people, you know, same thing, uh, people of color, uh, LGBTQA plus all those things that there are different levels of, of hard that we've all had to experience. And I think the most important thing or the way that I see that we achieve a, a higher level of it is just taking other people's uh, concerns seriously. Like, I don't think that we all have to share necessarily the same experiences to have an understanding, but I think it really helps when 
you know, we worked in rooms full of men and just having them understand, even though they can't understand and take your concerns seriously. And I think that's one way we start to, to like get over this hump. And I think another way really that we start to achieve this is when every single panel or every single, you know, uh, board or body or all these things includes a, a diverse, a diversity, right? Like if right. you look at a whole panel and you go that everybody here is of the exact same age, uh, the, makes the exact same kind of beer, uh, is the same sex or the same, you know, um, has the same, you know, sexual preference or looks the exact same as the same color. There's a problem with that. And I, I mean that from the simplest thing, like a vine part article asking 10 brewers what they think the trends are next year. Right. Like it should include a diverse panel of people because they are out there and they exist. And to me, it starts to help when you see that every one of these things just happens to be diversity. It's not just you're on a panel talking about diversity or on a panel talking about being a woman. Like you're on a technical panel talking about the things you know most about. You know, I just happen to have grown up this way, you know, looking like this. That's something I'm kind of an expert on, I guess. I really don't know, but I really am an expert on, you know, making lager beer, right? Like that I actually do know a lot about, right? One of them is experience and one of them is something that I've studied very hard. Exactly. So that to me is, is the thing that I'd like to see more, but I think it's getting better just seeing different speakers, right. That are, are different. Exactly. And I, you I are. think when we reach a point where people stop being surprised, um, that a woman is doing this job or, you know, you can insert any minority into that category when it's just, of course, a woman's doing this job. Why wouldn't a woman do it, do this job? You know, when I sit down, I, I would never question a chef doing this job. Um, you know, you can't taste whether a man or a woman or um, someone from the queer community made this beer. So why does it matter as long as they were able to do it? Um, I think when that stops being a surprise, and I still am amazed that people are surprised at what I do. It's like, <laughs> Me too. why? Women are everywhere. They're doing everything these days. Why would beer be a big surprise? Um, Again, going back to one of my early um, master brewers meetings, um, I had a gentleman from SAB Miller. I was introduced to him as a brewmaster, gave him the whole spiel of my background. And he pulled me aside afterwards and said, do you really drink beer? That's so weird. (laughs) It was so weird. I was like, that's yeah, the weirdest question. What ever. I do. Yeah, this is what I do for a living. I uh, had a similarly funny, I was in the Lauderton, like doing my regular, like I, we have to actually hop in there at the end of it to scrape out the last bit of malt that the rakes can't get. And it's kind of like hot and sweaty in there. And like, I, you know, I kind of look like I like I'm working I kind of look yes, like I'm working exactly anyways I'm in the water tent and I kind of poke my head out because I'm about to get out and this guy looks at me in the face and he goes oh poor thing and I'm like this, that's the weirdest oh poor thing and I was like this is my job bro like I don't know what to say to you uh but I think like some of those things are are kind of funny and ridiculous um but you know I think I think just putting like to great credit there are more people out there that are looking at making sure these things are, you know, more diverse and, you know, credit where credit's due uh, for those things. And, you know, if 
again, if you're somebody who is a beer writer or uh, putting together a conference or any of those things, you should look at what your what your your panel or what your group of people that is speaking or whatever looks like and, and evaluate if that's really the best foot forward. And I'm not talking about taking, you know, anybody's jobs or what you know what I mean, but like look at it. There's an expert in that field that can that is it doesn't look like everybody else necessarily. And I think that's important. And once we get there, it becomes not weird then anymore. Yeah. And you know, look at the questions that you're asking. I swear for the whole entire 10 years that I was at Ben Brewing Company, every single article. And at that time, there was, everybody was writing articles on women and beer. They were everywhere. And I was like, after 2008, I was like the poster child of um, the Brewers Association for a couple years. So my face was everywhere. And the only question I got asked was how does it feel to be a woman in a male dominated industry? I was so sick of that. It was like, can't we talk about my beer? Like yes. I'm, I'm just regurgitating the exact same answers because you're asking the same questions. I've like, actually bring something new saying, to the table. Yep, I've actually started saying, I'm not gonna answer that question. Like I, I'll just tell people anymore. Like I'm not gonna answer that question anymore. If you wanna ask me about something else or if you wanna have a intricate conversation about how we can you know, like what you just did, you know, achieve equality or what does that look like? You know, I'm happy to have that conversation all day, but I'm, I'm, I'm frankly quite tired of being asked that same question. So this is a uh, shout out to all those people out there who want to keep asking that question. It's, it's, it's tired. We're just people that want to be recognized as not female brewers, but just brewers. Like I want to be great at this job. I want to be on top because I want to be on top because I want to be great. I want to lead this industry in a, in a new direction or in a, you know, I want to, I want to guide it and like, you know, like you have. So I think, uh, yeah, I would definitely, that was one of my questions for you is, you know, what is the question you're tired of answering? Um, oh, and is there a man. question that you wish people would ask you, you know, is there any specific questions that you wish people would, you know, that you've always wanted to answer or that you think that, you know, maybe it was in a specific situation, but is there anything you've ever wanted to be asked that people don't ask. Well, you know, I kind of look at articles that with, you know, that are featuring men, they never get asked questions like that. It's just, they're focused on their artistry. Um, you know, what is their focus with beer? Um, you know, where they're taking their business, how they're doing things differently. I never get asked that stuff it's always the same, same. And I can yeah. remember I was in the Wall Street Journal and a girl came to Ben Brewing Company and she was doing the article and I was so excited because it was a woman that was going to be um, doing this. And she spent all day with me and I was kind of telling her about how I always get asked the same things. And I really felt like this is when it's going to happen. She's going to write an article on me me not just being a woman and i had made some comment about one of the breweries in town doing a beer called girl beer and i was like man that should have been me and that's what the article focused on i was so disappointed and everybody else was like oh my god you have like a full page in the wall street journal and all i could think about was how disappointed i was yeah, I agree with you. And I think, uh, I think this is, uh, I think this is a really cool, um, I said it before not to, you know, 
give John Hall too big of an ego, but I think this is a really interesting idea because I think we're going to, I think we've already seen it, how inclusive and who knows who and who's friends with who and how, you know, who you respect and who knows people and who's friends with people and, and getting to the deep down of some of these really cool conversations. And I think we've already seen a lot of diversity in it to begin with. And I think it's uh, cool to talk about, obviously beer. That's what we most love to begin with. And so, you know, it's good to, it's great to, you know, it, it, you are a huge inspiration for me. So sorry, I'm going to like fangirl for a minute. Uh, I saw you the first time I was a brand new brewer, pink boot society. Uh, you came and give a talk in Denver. It was my first pink boots meeting and you were there. And I was just like, doe eyed and just, I was just like, I want to be here. I want to hang out with her. I want her to be my friend. And then like four years ago, maybe you showed up at beer shot and like gave me your phone number. And I was, I don't know, dude, (laughs) I was like, oh shit, I got Tony Cornette's phone number. Like I am such a big dick right now. Like I can't even Anyway, so that's what you've done for me. And that's which what you've is done for pretty hilarious because I go in and I taste your beers and I'm like, oh my God, these are so beautiful. I want to make beers like this. And that's really, you know, when I met you, that was my whole thing. It was like, can I send you beers? Uh, would you feel comfortable in critiquing them for me? Because um, I always find it, it pretty interesting when you feel comfortable enough to be able to help someone out. Um, Not all brewers can do that. And you've been amazing at giving me super detailed notes. And for me, that's how I learn is by, you know, kind of just having that discussion with another brewer. And, you know, for me, I don't necessarily, um, beer isn't that emotional for me. Um, I'm a little bit detached in that to where I am, Still critical of I'm probably my worst critic on beers um, and I will pick them apart because my goal is to make them perfect and when I can find a confidant to be you know I have a few of them across the country where I'll send beers where especially like in your instance where you're an expert at what you do um, I can send you my loggers and really get amazing feedback which has been invaluable to me so thank you so much. No, this is super rad. Uh, yeah, I think, you know, it's been so cool talking to you. Hopefully I'll get to see you in a couple weeks. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, we'll have, we'll, we'll drink a couple beers together. You come into Tiki night, you know? Oh, so. absolutely. If I'm invited, I'm you there. are invited. Absolutely. So, um, hopefully I'll get to see you in a couple weeks. Actually, I definitely will get to see you in a couple weeks. You know, where I'll be for the most part and, uh, absolutely. Yeah. sweet. Well, it was great talking to you, Tanya. It was fantastic talking to you. It's always a joy. I love you. I love you too. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. Uh, Tanya will be back on the next episode of this show as the host having a conversation with a brewer of her choosing. That'll be in the air in two weeks. So make sure you turn in for that. Visit allaboutbeer.com and follow on social media and to support journalism in the beer space, check out patreon.com backslash allaboutbeer. I'm Ashley Carter of Beer Stout Lager House. Thank you for listening to the Brewer to Brewer podcast. This episode was brought to you by First Tea. First Tea delivers the ingredients and experience brewers need for delicious beers and innovative flavors. Flexible order sizes and direct from farm teas for your next brew. Find out more about First Tea by visiting blog.firsttea.com. That's blog.firsdtea.com.